Hello and welcome to this week's Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm editor Peter White, and we've got with us today a solar analyst, Andres. Hello there. Uh, hydrogen analyst, Bogdan. Hello. Our EV analyst, Connor. Hello. And our product manager, Simon Thompson. Good morning, Peter. All the discussion we have in these podcasts are between the team and are built around the stories we published last night on our free weekly issue. You can sign up for that on our website at www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click on energy and you'll be right among the stories. Today, we're going to discuss a surprise announcement by the European Commission President in her speech at Davos about competing with the Inflation Reduction Act from the US. We'll hear about one British company making lithium-ion batteries, which has gone into administration. Are there more to come? And we shall hear about the first attempt to fly across the Atlantic using hydrogen as the fuel. And then Simon will quiz us on one or two of the short items we've published on the energy transition. So first, let's um, take a look at um, what um, Ursula von der Leyen had to say at Davos. So it's really not too surprising in that there have been some outrageous statements in the previous weeks, uh, one from the CEO of Volkswagen saying that he was going to, instead of making uh, six battery factories in Europe, he'd make them all in America because the IRA would pay him to make them there. And um, that type of rhetoric has uh, been used to put pressure on the European Commission. And it's, it's interesting, what she painted it was, was slowly, very slowly, a picture of uh, how much money the EU has already spent on, on its Green Deal and on things like Repower EU, which although that is really set up to, um, to, to gain energy security after uh, Russian gas had been cut off, uh, is still another spend. Uh, as well as money that the EU's put into the Just Transition Fund, she makes it sound like EU's spending more money than America, although, and although it kind of is spending more money than has been announced in the IRA, that's just part of its normal budget, some of this stuff. So um, we have to be careful that we compare like with like. But um, she talked up the idea of something called the Green Deal Industrial Plan, and behind that is a separate investment into raw materials. It's called the Critical Raw Materials Act, which is going to be introduced, which will look for strong relationships around rare earth metals. So we're back straight away into batteries. No one's mentioned that if that includes solar and um, polysilicon, but I imagine it will. And it is exactly what the IRA has already set up. And in fact, before that, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act spent $7 billion laying the path for raw materials supply chain, mostly from American uh, America and American allies. So there's all, already, you know, it already looks very much like the IRA. This is, the, this is the, the thing that really convinced me. They're going to temporarily suspend the laws on EU state aid. Uh, it's very clear. You can't give state aid if you're in the EU. One country cannot back its own suppliers over the other 26. And the EU has never given subsidies directly. They give loans uh, and they are paid back, theoretically. But now they're going to break that rule and allow um, incentives. For instance, tax breaks, just like the IRA, and they'll be doing that purely 
for um, um, for investment in renewables. Uh, and that will, there will be something called the European Sovereignty Fund, which will take about forever to set up. But I mean, it's going to be funded as part of the midterm review of the EU budget later this year. So there will be money in the pot come June. I mean, this, this, I think, basically, so many industrialists have said that we're off to America to find money in the IRA that she had to respond. Whether it's real or not is another matter. Do you think there's been a lot of horse trading in, in the in the background over the last few months? Say, for example, the, the Volkswagen deal. Yeah, I don't think anyone takes very seriously the idea that Volkswagen would put those factories in America. Volkswagen has put a factory in America and it will put more factories in America. Um, one of the, the, the products named on the IRS list for full uh, IRA funding is the ID4, almost the complete range of the ID4. Um, so it, it's, it's been very uh, early in getting agreed terms, but it's having to spend $4.2 billion to build a, a, a plant in America, and it's having to um, move key aspects of the ID4 out of Europe and, and elsewhere and into America to, to make that happen. And it's, it's brought 4,000 jobs to the US. Um, now, I think you would um, find if, if Volkswagen did anything other than that, uh, it would just find itself disadvantaged in the States, and it needs to, um, it needs to, to, to keep increasing its market share in the States and being in a good position to do that. Otherwise, it would go backwards. There's, that's definite. So that's a natural form of investment. But at the same time, it, you announce that and then stare at uh, Ursula van der Leyen and say, what are you going to do? You know, I've already announced some money for America. And you, you, uh, you, you bring pressure to bear as skillfully as you can. I, I mean, you've got to remember that Siemen, that um, BMW, Volkswagen, Mercedes all turned to the um, European government and said, do not uh, agree to this thing whereby we will have uh, internal combustion engines banned by 2035. It would ruin us car companies. And, and they, they assumed that they would be heard um, in, in Brussels. They weren't. And the rule was passed. And funnily enough, Volkswagen has been one of the most nimble at changing direction and getting onto the electric vehicle production line as you know, faster than any of the others. So, um, you know, they can be brought to heel. And um, I imagine there's as much threat as there is um, temptation in, uh, in what uh, von der Leyen's doing. Tell you where there is horse trading, between America and Europe, they're trying okay. to make a rule that says this is purely for Europeans and the Americans make one, this is purely for Americans. And in the end, what they really mean is this is for everyone but China. Isn't there the elephant in the room? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then you have a meeting with China and you say, I'll tell you exactly what I told the Americans. You're not allowed in. Uh, <laughs> and then you say to the Americans, of course you're welcome. Uh, and you, you have closed door meetings. This has been a going on. Uh, I, I can remember back in the early 1980s when there was, um, w whenever China was done for manufacturing something below and selling it in Europe for below manufacturing prices, dumping, in other words, it was, it was never dumping. It was, we can just make it cheaper. We, we can make a profit on this. You can't. And they were just exterminating European jobs. And so you just put, just say you're not you're not a good um, European. If you build a factory here, you know maybe you are. And then a lot of 
companies start building factories in Europe, and then they they had tariffs removed. So you know the tariffing process and um, quiet back from negotiations has always been part of this process. I mean, and, and America's doing it with the IRA. It's come out with a lot of money, and so it said, right, well now we get to set set the rules, and um, this could turn into a, a all, an all out trade war, but. I know who my money's on. If there is an all-out trade war, and if it's all about pricing, my money's on China. You know, it, it, it can sell to the rest of the world. It can sell to Europe. It can it can set up infrastructure in Africa. It can bide its time, waiting for the IRA money to run out, and then hit America with the cheapest um, uh, with pro- cheaper products that America can produce. Um, that's part and parcel of its charm. Uh, why, why do you think for 40 years American companies have been setting up manufacturing in China? It's it's cheaper. It's, it's not very difficult. China, of course, will now set up factories in the Philippines, in Malaysia, in other places um, for products that are not uh, uh, making them the, the most profit. Uh, China's becoming the new America where it now has to offload manufacturing out of China because it can't make it cheap enough in China. So why is it um, why is it now after forty years of, of offshoring? Why are both the US and Europe uh, now trying to bring manufacturing back? Uh, now that is a, that is a, a, an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, do we have the appetite to build a manufacturing industry? The Germans certainly do. The rest of Europe certainly doesn't. You know, and, and does America have that appetite? We've had two presidents in a row saying you've got to bring your manufacturing home. And everyone ignored uh, Donald Trump, uh, although he, he, you know, he had public spats with Apple over it, and Apple ignored him. And when you get companies like Apple bringing manufacturing home, well, maybe, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, the issue around Taiwan is perhaps make, bringing it to, to top of the pile. If Taiwan was to suddenly embrace China, or if China was to invade Taiwan, um, half the, the semiconductor manufacturing of the West would be annexed by China. Um, China wouldn't do anything wrong with that. I mean, it would be, I think it'd be a terrible thing if they invaded Taiwan. I think, you know, it'd be World War Three. but China wouldn't do anything bad with that. China wants to trade, and it would just say, oh, look, we've got more to trade with. I mean, you know, it's, it's not... Um, and the way that China should respond to Taiwan is by out-competing with it from, from its own shores. I mean, that, that's the right way to do it. Uh, and um, partnering with it. You know, but um, at the moment, all the, all the rhetoric, you know, the geopolitical rhetoric is hostile between America and China. And I think it's just um, everyone wants, to, wants a bogeyman in the room. And it's, and it's China and it will be China for the foreseeable future. I'd like to add on to Andrew's question about the timing of this all. From an economic point of view, the best time to spend on infrastructure and manufacturing is after it's all been burnt down. <laughs> Once it's been burnt down, you then require it, and that's when government spending is warranted, and support for industry is heavily, heavily warranted. So while it's not been burnt down, a lot of economies are in pretty dire straits when it comes to manufacturing outputs as a result of supply chain issues resulting from COVID. And so there's been a renewed need to onshore that. I'd say during COVID, there was a lot of talk about, is this the end of globalization? Is this the end of outsourcing your supply chain to a, to a cheaper nation? Because the level of instability is just too high, which was incredibly short-sighted and a stupid point to make in the sense that 
industries will always follow the money and they have incentives towards short-term thinking just because of things like managerial structures. And so COVID really just accelerated this and it brought it top to mind. And for a lot of countries, it's that, well, properly managed countries, they're able to spend more because they were able to save over the last half a decade a bit by increasing interest rates then. As an example, the UK hasn't done this. And when it did try to spend, our prime minister got replaced by a lettuce. Yeah. Part of that was because the uh, spend was utterly nonsensical. And Well, it was, just, it was just timing. It was just timing. You know, as you say, uh, uh, spending on the wrong things with borrowed money um, is, is always going to get that, that happen to you. But I think the, um, the most um, powerful weapon, people keep ignoring it, is this um, carbon border adjustment mechanism that the EU has brought in. I mean, can you imagine um, the American cars being made in America and then being shipped to Europe and at the border, a carbon tax being put on them because America is not as efficient um, or is not as high up the uh, decarbonisation route as Europe is. And that's what's going to happen. I mean, that that law has passed. (laughs) And um, that's the most most levelising law because once... um, you, you have Europe do it, then America has to do it. And at some stage, China has to do it. And so what they have to do then is keep in step with each other on the amount of carbon they use in their manufacturing so that they can have free trade agreements to sell into each other's countries. And that will accelerate the um, uh, the whole uh, energy transition. And, and if anyone gets out of step, like Brazil, Indonesia, uh, and they're miles behind, you just tax their... Tax their um, their imports at the border and that hurts and there's a good reason for it and so that that um uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism i think is the most fantastic law um ever although you know i'm biased because i kind of thought of it i wrote an article about it before they ever announced it saying that's what they should do <laughs> but um but it does it brings manufacturing home because if you can make it in your country you've got a financial incentive already in place and it's permanent until everyone has gone through energy transition and then we're back to normal rules apply anyway let's move on um i think um that's you know that that's uh, a story that will run and run apologies for holding us here for a minute but what happens to the world trade organization in this instance america's already ignoring the world trade organization rules for the ira if europe then elects to join the U.S. in protectionist policies, what jurisdiction does the World Trade Organization really even have? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing is uh, Europe could either sue America over it or join them. Uh, uh, the Chinese premier went on a trip of South Korea and, and Japan, I think, um, basically saying to them, this law is against you. Come and join us in China. And they started trade talks uh, as well. If um, China could attract um, South Korea and Japan into its kind of uh, ambit, orbit, then um, it would be incredibly damaging for America. And um, who, 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 who treats those two as, as close partners? After a while, you have to embrace free trade, and free trade has to be on a level playing field. Everyone talks about China subsidizing all these industries. We all know that the, they pulled the subsidy on the solar industry um, three years ago, and, and they're pulling it on wind. And all they've got is a healthy industry. It can stand on its own two feet. It doesn't need subsidising anymore. Well, from that point of view, 
they've done their IRA already. They finished. They're moving on. Um, and you can't say the government is subsidising these products that we're importing. They're not. Not anymore. I mean, they have, but but not anymore. So uh, it's very difficult. Um, uh, if you can't manufacture at the price of China, you have to you have to come up with another plan. And this is the other plan. So I've written a, a paper this week which talks about the IRA, and and, I, and it doesn't look to me like it's set about to um, reduce emissions. It, it looks like it's there purely to uh, uh, balance the trade with China and. Um, and it's just it's just a bribe um, to uh, the community, the manufacturing community to come home. Uh, I don't think it's a big enough bribe, and that's the problem. Um, British Vault, Connor. Um, it was we were we were in one of these meetings when Simon said he drove past British Vault and nothing was happening, and we went, "Oh no, it'll be fine." And then we started digging into it. It turns out um, there was um, a fire uh, around that smoke. So uh, tell us what's happened. Yeah. So as of Tuesday, all of British Vault's staff, or the vast majority of which have been made redundant. And I think our contact immediately found a new job, which was how I found out. <laughs> it's expected, I think. This um, company with, it was founded in what, 2019? Never made a battery before, yeah. never really had anything to do with the industry. He just kind of said, yeah, we'll make the biggest factory in England and we'll do it quickly. And that was always a somewhat kind of laughable idea. But I think it really raises further questions about... Surely some of the people had something to do with batteries or cars. They were working with the UK BIC in the Midlands, which is um, it's an academic institution around the um, ex-manufacturing hub of the Midlands and work with the University okay. of Warwick and the University of Coventry, which are very, very good when it comes to manufacturing and engineering. There was expertise on it, but there was never any mass manufacturing expertise there. I would have to dig into British Vault's okay. leadership a bit more to yeah. really verify that, but compared to elsewhere in like Europe. So people like Freya, is that in Sweden? Uh, I was about uh, to mention uh, that men- they were Norway. managed it, haven't they? Norway. Freya, Norfolk. Yeah, at North Pole. Um, yes. Yeah. They've managed You've it. got this real contrast. Yeah. I think they've gone the right way about it, and they also went about it in countries with less hostile conditions towards new manufacturing products. You have... I mean, how much is this explained by the fact that um, Britain doesn't know how to fund tech or manufacturing, and all of its investors are terrified of it? I think it's part of that. I think it's definitely part of that, as you say, of... You don't get government support for projects in the same way that you do in Europe. Or in the same way that you do in the US. Or in Norway, or in Sweden. I think there was government support or some kind of, you know... Uh, there was. Yeah, yeah. I should I should mention that. There was 100 million dedicated to it as part of the 2019 leadership election. And that was said, once you hit certain milestones, you'll have portions of that unlocked and you can use it as you wish. Those milestones were never hit. I believe in September or in November, I don't remember, British Vault requested 30 million of that as a, we need this to continue operations. Could we please draw down 30 million early so as to continue operations? The government then said no, as those milestones had not been hit and they were inflexible on that. That was the point of no return for British Vault, or at least that's what it seems like. As British Vault then made two further requests, one for 11 million, Pounds and another for free. Subsequently, requesting just a little bit of that portion, which reeks of desperation. So, okay, please, can I have thirty million? No, okay, just eleven. Okay, 
please just free. I really need it. it. Really doesn't look good. And it's rare that I'll say this, but I'm with the government on this one. Really? And while okay. it does show him flip. So you, not you for think, the first decision, but was, for the subsequent. Anyway. I mean, I think if the thirty million was given in the first place, it would have been a show of confidence. But then with the subsequent political upheaval that preceded that decision, I don't think that that would have been. And, and was this all because the sufficient. Russian wars kicked off, and suddenly the price of materials has changed, and so suddenly their business plan doesn't end up quite so attractively? I don't believe so. I think that's a contributing factor. But I think it's mostly due to policy decisions elsewhere. We, we immediately got an email from uh, Harry, who, uh, who now works at a venture capital firm, used to work here. Um, and he said, uh, oh, is this the start of a consolidation? And we all looked around and went, well, who else is going to fold that's in lithium-ion? We got no one. Everyone can... I mean, who else is even here? Yeah, everyone, <laughs> but everyone else could, in the world can sell as much lithium-ion battery as they can make. So it's all about building factories. So uh, the interesting um, Sky News today announces that Andrew Forrest uh, from Fortescue uh, is going to build a $300 million uh, plant in Oxfordshire to make batteries for cars, trucks, uh, and, and trains and motorbikes. So that, 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 that's a new, you know, that, that's um, typically uh, and, he doesn't... And, and Andrew Forrest is also the guy that sort of put the freeze on the Sun Cable project. So he doesn't invest in absolutely everything that's renewable. Not everything. Well, I think I think that's about control, isn't it? You've got three or four billionaires in Sun Cable, and, and, and I'm sure for every billionaire there's a lot of ego, uh, and there's not room for... Uh, three of them in the phone box. So uh, I think perhaps um, that's more about, you know, doing it his way. And if he doesn't do it his way, he's going to pull out. And I think that's just an argument between billionaires. And they, um, I think that will get resolved. I don't think Sun Cave was dead by any stretch of the imagination. I think this is just, uh, all right, well, we'll put it into, we'll put it into uh, administration, but it will carry on. Uh, and they'll carry on trading, and then and then more money will be found because it's such a bloody good idea. And if you, if you listen to how much detail um, they've gone into of, of how the latest materials can be used, and how the cable can be built for less money, and and how um, and, what, and the order in which they're doing everything, this is a good plan. This is a great plan for Australia. So uh, I, I think that I think it, that will happen, and be copied. I think once it's been done, it'll be copied. So, so about so if you had to give one or two reasons only for the British fault um, failure, um, what would they be? I'd probably say inexperience was a major factor because you have the contrasting factors of Norfolk and you have Freya up in Northern Europe that have the experience behind them and they have buyers and they have all that is needed and they are succeeding. British fault never got a mass manufacturing OEM on their books. They had orders from Tata Motors. And they had a supply agreement with Glencore, which is great, but Tata only really makes luxury, lower volume vehicles in the UK because they own a Jaguar Land Rover brand. Yeah, but I mean, doesn't you know, they're, they're going to need battery, and and, and, yeah. and if they went into detail with British Volt and they weren't happy with what they saw and have decided to go their own route, that sets that speaks volumes. And and also the the terms. What were the terms for? A deal with Glencore. If you're not negotiating from strength with a company like Glencore, you're getting this price, and you're not getting any special favours. So uh, I suspect uh, that the, the devil is in the detail here. And if you if we had those contracts in front of us, we could 
we we would you know go oh no this isn't going to work but but of course no one will show them to us someone will pick up the mess though oh absolutely yes i think in the next couple of years somebody will purchase the site and make it into a factory for at least something just because it's a very very good site so I mentioned that one from uh, Andrew Forrest. There's also another one. They, they've unveiled the scheme for uh, the Swansea. Um, the Tidal project. Tidal Lagoon. Yeah. And in that is $300 million for a battery factory. So that's another battery factory that's being... being. So people are not you know, shy of opening up battery factories right now. We've got two within the space of one week in the UK. So... So I, I think this is, as you say, it will be in the detail, it will be in the management, it will be in what was missing from the plan. Um, and, and anyway, it's fine for Freya to go to uh, the local government and get their hands on money because historically that happens. Uh, in England, if you're going to a government that's, that's, um, that's borrowed heavily in the, um, in the pandemic and has borrowed heavily in the Russian war, um, you're not going to a, a government that's flush with flush with cash. So I think that was that's that's what done did for them: lack of experience and and uh, an unwilling uh, government to help hand. Right. So Bogdan, I want to I want to jump over to you now because um, um, we've got this idea and to fly across the Atlantic in a plane using hydrogen. Um, what happens if the hydrogen runs out? Yes. Well. Um... Hopefully it won't run out because, well, you can make the same same argument for, for kerosene, to be honest. But I don't suppose that last time you flew to America, you, you boarded the plane thinking at all. I hope I hope we don't run out of fuel. Um, oh, someone's done it before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, everything needs to start somewhere. And uh, the guys at H3 Dynamics, uh, I'm sure they, uh, they have their uh, pencils sharpened up and... Uh, their calculations to the point. I mean, they're going the shortest route. They're going in the southern hemisphere, and they're and they're going only is it two thousand miles? Uh, yeah, three thousand three hundred kilometers. So yeah, probably two thousand something miles. Right. So in your paper on um, aircraft, um, what was you thought that uh, fuel cell uh, flights would be a certain length? That wasn't as far as 3,300 miles, though, was it? No, but the big difference here is that we're talking H2 Dynamics wants to fly a, an unmanned drone, so this is going to be very, very small, very lightweight. Okay. Uh, all of the calculations I did in my paper um, are taking into account small passenger planes, so 20 people. So what's this going to prove? Well, it's, it's the first step. It proves that you know hydrogen can, can make things fly the same way how how are they keeping the hydrogen? Is is it um, is it frozen? Is it yes, it's liquid. Is it, is it, this is uh, basically the the bit of news they came out because H3 Dynamics partnered up with um, Hylium, I think it's pronounced, um, which is a spin-off that came out of the Korean uh, Science and Technology Institute. They developed a um, storage tank for liquid hydrogen. Obviously, the the challenge in storing liquid hydrogen is that it needs to be cooled to minus two hundred and um, uh, 39 degrees Celsius, I want to say, um, okay. 253 degrees Celsius minus. That, that, that's zero. <laughs> and um, it's basically zero. That's minus 273. Mm. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's almost zero. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, so it's got to be very cold, and um, that requires a lot more energy, which makes it more expensive. Yeah. But 
the benefits you get are in uh, the amount of volume you have to carry. Yes, yeah, so you get an increase of volume. energy density, basically. You can fit more hydrogen yeah. molecules in the same volume in liquid form than gaseous form, um, which obviously saves volume, which saves um, weight, uh, which increases range. So does, do you think this is going to change people's attitudes? I mean, we, we've got people still, and we still have this conversation with people, and they're saying, oh, but SAF is the, it's SAF is the way forward. Uh, we know this because everyone's told us, but they haven't done enough about it to make that credible. Uh, so we wrote a paper, uh, you wrote a paper, mm -hmm. suggesting that uh, it was a, SAF is basically a fantasy to stay, keep things as they are. Um, and that hydrogen would develop and slowly... Uh, pick up momentum long before SAF becomes 1% of uh, a fuel, uh, and as a result, would sweep past it. So so we've made that, that claim. Do you think, um, does this take us closer um, to to that, uh, you know, the, the, the hydrogen for flight, or is this an irrelevance, or, is, I mean, is this just a, a, a publicity campaign to bring people's attention to um, to what these two companies. I do. think it's a it's a small step in the right direction. You obviously have to start somewhere, and the first the first thing to do was probably to to fly a, a drone, transatlantic. It's 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 a nice catchphrase. But I think it, it it's the first step. Um, I think it's still it's still early on, early days, 2023. Uh, so if you get this flight out of the way, 2023, we can potentially start seeing um, manned flights. In the next few years, I mean, Denmark already has a tender in place for a first commercial um, hydrogen flight by 2027 or 2028. So, um, yeah, small steps. Uh, who has Denmark, that? Denmark, did you say? Okay. Is that internal flight or is that into Germany or something? No, I think it's internal. Okay. Not, not a very good country. No, but again, small steps, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Okay. So that, I mean, it's the same they have with ferries. You know, they have batteries going into ferries uh, in the Nordics. Why? Because although it's very, very cold up there, it's the, the distances aren't mm. huge and they are a, a, good, a good place to yep. start. Yeah. Um, and the IRA, in fact, is going to promote uh, batteries in ferries in America where at similar circumstances where they're, they've get, they're going short, shorter distances. Okay. Um, okay, so it's not earth-shattering, but I, th you know, it, I think you're right. I think it is... Um, the 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 more people that are convinced that hydrogen is the hydrogen industry is real and it's coming, um, the more we can just get on with it rather than sit around arguing with people who say hydrogen is never going to happen. Exactly. Simon, have you got anything for us um, from the issue? There was a lot in um, in the uh, in worth noting. There, there certainly was. I, I was. It's already. Be, I was going to talk about uh, Sun Cable project. It, it's voluntary. Uh, administration, but it's already been mentioned. And in fact, that's one of the themes of, of the addition are these um, huge projects. How do you fund them? And some of them are, are slipping by the wayside. But one of the items that tickled me was um, uh, as about space-based solar farms. As a company called Space Solar is to collaborate with uh, the Saudi Arabian Neom mega project. And that was uh, is it the beaming back the energy back down to Earth using radio waves. This is. Uh, um, well, yeah, but they're all, you know, I mean, we've come, we've done this before in the podcast, I think about two years ago. You oh, know, okay. The, um, you know, radio waves are energy. You know, they, they, the, um, they, they're going to have an effect. They can be 
um, done at, uh, if you think about it, you know, um, how loud do you have to shout from space to be heard? Now, I always talk about um, um, uh, uh, radio waves shouting. And I do, do that when people don't understand the amount of power you put into radio waves. If you're going point to point in, in a straight line and you, you, um, you create something that's very powerful, you could cause harm. Um, but if you if it's to a single point on the on the surface, um, you can just shout louder, uh, and that you know you've got more energy uh, into the wave. I mean that's just for people to understand. It's not, um, uh, but it is measured in what what sound measured in decibels. Decibels, and and so so uh, you know it's the same measurement for um, uh, for for uh, uh, the amount of energy you put into waveforms. So the the um, you can shout many times louder. You know, for years, when people had mobile phones, they were terrified that the signals traveling around the planet would give give people brain cancer if you're holding a phone to your ear. Um, and, of course, they're incredibly weak signals. But um, you can make them much stronger, and um, you, you modulate them very tightly, and you can point them very narrowly, and you can catch... That energy, you don't get all of the energy. Um, a lot is lo lost in transit. But if you start in space with a lot of energy, um, then you can get a considerable amount of it back. Uh, all you have to know the details. You have to know the distance um, and uh, the wavelengths, and you know you have to know the details. But you can calculate it. Uh, it's certainly an idea. But but you look, talk to any engineer. Uh, and he starts adding up the problems, the hurdles that are in um, in the way. You know, you've got to put something up uh, into space. Well, as soon as you're talking a satellite launch, you're into $100 million straight away. Um, you've got to, um, you've got to, um, it's got to last a long time. It's got to, um, you've got your ground, um, you need a lot of security around it. Your ground stations have to be abundantly secure and they have to be in the right place. And they they can't leak out the sides and um, and uh, send that energy where it's not needed. So I th I, th I think there's um, yeah it's it, it's theoretically possible. It's a bit like um, fusion. It's theoretically possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, it is it is a bit different this time because it's got the backing of the British government and the Saudi government with their four hundred nine billion. Uh, Neom project, which um, I, I guess Saudi isn't the most reliable on big projects, and we've just been talking about British faults failure, though. So, uh, yeah, I mean, well, especially in Saudi Arabia, where you have conventional solar uh, that you can you can just lay out in the desert, and you got free energy. Why, why on earth would you do it? You know, <laughs> I love all this science stuff, but as long as there's no money involved. Yeah, Saudi money, British, British, British engineering. Oh, what a great combination! Not. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it, yeah, it, it's not science fiction. It, 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 it's not something from a Bond movie. Will it happen? Not uh, in our lifetime. Now, I, I mean, if, if an engineer spent a day on it, he could work out what the costs might be, and they would be eye-watering. So, um, anyway, uh, it, it, but it's not impossible. Okay, so. Um, for those listening, um, go to rethinkresearch.biz, click the button saying energy, um, 
and you'll be in the weekly analysis. You can read that for free. The whole point of our weekly analysis is to show you um, what we're capable of. Click on forecasts and data. That tells you what we sell. Our whole service is available um, for $4,600 a year uh, for a corporate license. So um, uh, you'll find, uh, if you look through forecasts and data, there's 30 or 40 research papers a year. Um, we forecast everything to 2050. Um, and with that, um, oh, one more plug. Uh, we, we, we were about to publish our annual um, electricity generation numbers. Um, that is a forecast to 2050. We call it a, um, annual primary electricity report. That'll be coming out in January. Look out for it. Um, and um, with that, this is the end of the this week's podcast. And we hope you're, you've enjoyed it enough to come back next week.